listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from Invermycin for COVID-19, A Tale of Science Gone Wrong by Jack Lawrence. It was first broadcast live on the 9th of February, 2023. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support. Thank you very much for the introduction. And yes, today I'm going to talk to you about how I accidentally became a scientific data sleuth. A little bit about me um, before I begin. As Cleo rightly said, I uh, work on researching pancreatic cancer. Uh, in fact, that's me in that second picture right uh, at the far uh, tissue culture hood. And I research, um, again, as a result of what I discovered or the rabbit hole I fell down, ivermectin's effect on pancreatic cancer. It is obviously far too early to say whether it does have any effect on patients. It kills cells, but so do a lot of things. So that's just to say that I've got nothing against ivermectin in general. I might say some things today which are slightly critical of the drug or of people who've been promoting the drug, but I, I do want to say it isn't a genuinely excellent drug and its past history and potential future are amazing. So during COVID, or since COVID, I should say, if I mention the word ivermectin, um, What's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, for some people, it will be horse dewormer, or it will be, on maybe on the other side of the spectrum, it will be wonder drug. Or as some of my friends recently at a party put it, um, a horse tranquilizer. Now, ivermectin has been used as a horse dewormer. To my knowledge, it's never been used as a horse tranquilizer. But suffice it to say, I think its reputation has been slightly sullied during the pandemic among some, while with others, it has been uh, shot into the stratosphere in a way that I think is unhelpful to debate. If we just examine some of the headlines over the past few years and, and perhaps some of the tweets, um, we see on one side that ivermectin is safe, it's effective, it's an amazing drug, it's overwhelmingly positive, we should immediately be investing in it, we should be giving it to every COVID patient under the sun, in fact we should be giving it to other patients as well, potentially cancer patients. Meanwhile, on the other side, you see stories about uh, drug overdoses or Fears of overdoses of people calling poison control lines. You see articles about horse owners facing ivermectin shortages. You see people calling it unproven, dangerous and selling fast. You see millions, hundreds of millions being spent by insurance companies on reimbursing ivermectin subscriptions, uh, prescriptions, I should say. And of course, there's a now a now famous tweet by the US FDA who tweeted, you are not a horse, you are not a cow. Seriously, y'all, stop it about ivermectin and people's promotion of it during the COVID-19 pandemic. Ultimately, I actually think, although this tweet was rather amusing, is rather amusing, I do think it also has unfortunately uh, clouded the debate somewhat. But um, before I get into that debate, I think it's also fair to address a couple of points that of people who promote ivermectin uh, often bring up, and that is that it was that the creators of ivermectin were awarded the 2015 Nobel Prize for its use in humans. You see here some conservative figures who who all make this point, and that is true. These people have rightly said it was the discoverers of ivermectin who were awarded the prize. And here you see two of them, Satoshi Omura and William C. Campbell from, from Merck. Um, and these two brilliant scientists were awarded the prize, but it was for ivermectin's use in, in animals and in people uh, against parasite diseases, not for its work in ivermectin. I think just because a drug or a person, I should say, because it's not the drug that was awarded the prize, it was the people, just because people have worked on a drug in one sphere doesn't mean that can be generalized to another sphere. But again, a lot of you might think, well, you might have a vague idea, well, it's, you know, maybe works on parasites, a horse dewormer. Um, but let me just tell you a little bit about what ivermectin actually is so you can understand why it became such a big issue during COVID. Well, it's, as I said, a brilliant parasite drug. It treats lots of diseases, but one of these is river blindness, which is a, a horrific disease um, where parasitic worms uh, sort of are, are, are laid in, in people by, by, by um, uh, flies and, and it, can, it can lead to blindness and it's a really horrendous disease and affects affected hundreds of millions of people. Uh, but ivermectin is able to cure this. It works by various ways, but one of them is by par paralyzing the parasite and then the parasite uh, can be expelled. Um, and also some studies in the, in the past have detected potential antiviral effects. So it really does seem to be that there might be some reason to think it might have some antiviral effect. Well, how is it actually found? Well, the story is quite interesting. Uh, Dr. Amura, he would always walk around his local area with little bags um, 
little plastic bags and into which he had put interesting soil samples. So if he saw some soil somewhere, he'd put the he'd put the put that in the in the in the bag, take it to the lab and see what happened. And uh, one day he was walking past a golf course and he noticed something interesting in the soil. Sort of put, picked it up, put it in his bag, and then took it to the lab. And initial experiments showed that whatever this substance was was having some interesting effects. And that substance that he had found was a substance called avermectin, was produced by by a, a bacteria. And then, after a little bit of tinkering with the with this substance, they added uh, a little bit of extra hydrogen, and uh, it was called ivermectin. It was first going to be called hivermectin with an H, H-Y, until they realized that in some languages, apparently that either sounds close to or, or sounds like the word testicles. And they thought, no, no, we can't, we can't go with that. We're going to call it ivermectin instead. And then the experimental process really began in earnest. They first put it in, in mice food and fed it to mice and noticed that those mice um, would, would be cured of, of, of internal parasitic uh, infections. And these fairly simple experiments uh, were described by again one of the other inventors of, uh, or sorry, not inventors, discoverers of ivermectin as complexity built on spe- uh, simplicity. Very simple experiments showed the, that there's a real potential for the drug. Well, what happened next? Well, the drug was offered into veterinary medicine, where it's had a tremendous effect in horses and cows and sheep, and in, in, in a whole myriad of different diseases. That was again in the um, around the mid 70s. Then in the late 80s, it was discovered and approved for use in in humans. Uh, where it again has had miraculous effects uh, to many people, and in fact, there are treatment programs for ivermectin uh, for, for for river blindness um, all over, particularly uh, sub-Saharan Africa. And Merck, the manufacturer, the original manufacturer of ivermectin, they made a commitment in 1987. And that commitment was they will give as much of the drug as needed for as long as as needed to help treat uh, river blindness and, and and eventually some some other conditions as well. And 35 years later, they've given um, more than 4.4 billion cumulative treatments and they've given donations to 44, 49 countries, all free of charge. And again, I, I, I don't think it's unfair to call ivermectin a wonder drug in this sort of um, sphere of, of anti-parasitic medicine. Well, then a few years down the line, COVID-19 hits. And I think we, we may remember those early days where there was complete fear this was obviously before vaccines before we had discovered some of these new treatments and so people were looking for anything they were desperate and slowly treatment started trickling in but slowly wasn't good enough so some people started going through molecular libraries and saying well you know what could work let's just test let's just throw these things at cells and see what happens and of course again the benefits of ivermectin if it were successful would be that it's cheap it costs a few cents uh, to, to manufacture it's, it's widely available it's, you can get it all over the world and it's, it's relatively safe actually um obviously not totally safe and obviously just because it's safe doesn't mean you you should take it uh, if it's not approved but but for, for, for standard doses it, it's safe so there were some initial signs of hope there was a study that was conducted in australia just days after the pandemic had been declared or at least submitted to a journal days after the pandemic had been declared and they had taken uh, kidney cells from a, uh, it's called a green monkey. They put the, those cells into, let's say, a Petri dish. And then they had infected those cells with a virus. In this case, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the virus that causes COVID-19. And they then treated these cells with ivermectin. And surprisingly or impressively, they found a massive reduction with just a single addition of the um, ivermectin. They found a, about a 5,000-fold reduction in viral RNA at 48 hours and therefore they said well this probably means there's benefits for humans so the next thing to do was well let's 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 do what we did for the cells but let's do it in people and there was a uh, sort of retrospective study uh, done which was produced by a company known as uh, called Surgisphere and they found that compared to conventionally treated patients they observed a survival benefit for ivermectin i should say this is a sort of a retrospective study it was rather small but again promising evidence as a result of the, these early findings, search interest absolutely exploded. This is a graph of Google Trends data. And as well as search interest, uh, research interest uh, intensified and people all over the world started running small scale studies or retrospective analyses. And then this takes us to about the December of 2020, where Dr. Pierre Corey, who went on or had, maybe at that point had already founded the uh, FLCCC, which is a, uh, a lobbying group uh, eventually for ivermectin. And he's described to the US Senate, he said, ivermectin has a miraculous 
effectiveness that obliterates COVID-19. He would later slightly walk back the, the, the word miraculous, but certainly at that point, the word stuck. And to a lot of people, it still sticks. Then, as these studies started trickling in, various groups started putting together meta-analyses, looking at all the studies, looking, pooling the data, seeing what are the takeaways from this data. Um, and one of these studies, uh, one of these meta-analyses was produced by, as I said, Dr. Pierre Curie with the FLCCC, uh, and the, another one was uh, conducted by people associated with the Bird Group, which is a British, um, I think it's something like a British, British ivermectin recommendation development. And you might be able to already see that these both have expressions of concern on them. Um, we'll touch on why that might be a little bit later on, but uh, at the time, those concerns weren't necessarily present. So another person who looked at uh, ivermectin was um, Dr. Andrew Hill from the University of Liverpool. He also conducted a meta-analysis, and again, he found um, that there were reasons for to be hopeful about it. And he said the purpose of this, uh, which was in, in a separate uh, uh, sort of interview with the FT, he said the purpose of this report is to forewarn people that this is coming. Get prepared. Get supplies. Get uh, get ready to approve it. We need to be ready. And um, I, it seems like people got ready because, as you can see here, um, during the pandemic, these uh, prescriptions for ivermectin started rushing up. I think these are uh, the, these are prescriptions from uh, pharmacies all over the US, and it shows again during uh, you know especially in going into twenty twenty one. Um, interest in the, in the drug and prescription of the drug really shot up. Unfortunately, although Merck is an off-patent drug and, and, and is relatively cheap to produce, some people took advantage of the hype around it and started selling it um, via uh, online services. And they may they they would sell it, you know, something that manufactured for pennies. They would sell it for a hundred dollars plus. And one of these organizations was uh, America's Frontline Doctors, um, who were perhaps most famous for, for including the, the lady uh, who was uh, dubbed, uh, I think, the demon sperm lady, um, who believes that uh, endometriosis is caused by sex with demons that takes place in dreams. Uh, another one of the founders of this organization um, would later go on to be uh, arrested or uh, and charged for uh, entering the U.S. Capitol during the uh, January uh, um, sixth uh, uprising in um, or insurrection, I should say, in 2021. So slightly interesting characters. Again, it's, it, I, I don't want to tar ivermectin um, advocates with the, all with the same brush. This is just to say there are some people who took advantage of this situation. But I've sort of given the, the, the positive case. Unfortunately, things slowly started to fall apart a little bit. To begin with, uh, I think it is, um, we've probably, a lot of us will have seen this this meme. I think it's almost um, required to be shown at any scientific presentation. And that is that um, when you see a claim that a common drug or vitamin kills cancer cells in a Petri dish, keep in mind, so does a handgun. That's to say that you can put a lot more of a substance onto cells and, and kill whatever's in them um, than, or, or even the cells themselves, than, than you can necessarily put into a person without also killing that person. So... Let's have a look at that original in vitro study, that original sort of Petri dish study. Well, the experimental dose they used was 35 times higher than the standard treatment doses. And, and already at the time, people, other scientists started questioning, saying, well, it's, it's, you know, this would be a very high dose. Um, and on top of that, there's also a question of whether it can even you can even get a dose high enough uh, into the bloodstream because a lot of ivermectin sort of stays bound and doesn't dissolve in the blood. So you'd have to have an even higher dose. Um, and there were lots of reasons to be sceptical, or again, not 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 write it off, but to be sceptical. Then it turned out that that Surgesphere study, that initial sort of first study in humans almost, uh, it was retracted um, because it turned out that the data may uh, have been fraudulent and um, there was major concerns with that data. However, some of the remaining studies, uh, there were some uh, left that, well, that had already developed at that point. A lot of them tended to be small, and they, so they had often defects with uh, with report reporting defects. So that's you know exactly how they did the randomization, all those different things, and were slightly lower quality. Now again, not all of them are bad, um, but there, there, were, there were certainly questions. But there was one exception. There was one really big study, and that was a study out of um, Egypt uh, by a man. Uh, headed, so he was headed by a man by the name of Dr. Ahmed El Ghazar. And he, um, I should move to the next slide, he had found in this study that it had massive benefits, like a 90% reduction in mortality. I mean, that would be amazing. Uh, it was a large study comparatively, it had 600 patients that were split into various groups. Um, there was 400 patients in a treatment group and 
200 uh, and 200 in a prevention group um uh, but we all yeah well the prevention we'll, we'll leave aside for now but he was a prestigious author he was uh the, the, i think the dean of the medical school he had uh, he published a lot of, of things in, in egypt and this paper along with these others but particularly this paper because it was a bigger study uh, influenced science policy and in millions were treated as a result particularly i think in in, in, in um, south america but various other places as, as well and it certainly was one of the drivers of of the let's say I was just going to say hype, but maybe the support for ivermectin. At this point, I was an undergraduate student. Um, I had done modules in in global health. I had done so. I, I knew about ivermectin, but I had no. I hadn't really been following the the scientific uh, debate about its effect for COVID with that much precision. Um, until one day, I was given an assignment by one of my um, supervisors, or one of, I should say, one of my lecturers. And the assignment was to look at this paper, this Egyptian paper, and write a, a critical evaluation of it. And it was made clear, I mean, that paper, as, as uh, I should have mentioned, it was a preprint, but during COVID, which which means it hadn't been published in the journal yet and hadn't been peer-reviewed, re- but during COVID, preprint, preprints really came into their own and we needed to make decisions quickly. So sometimes we couldn't wait for that, um, that, that, that sort of uh, peer-review process to take place and there were benefits and, and downsides of this approach, but I think it was a necessary one given the, the time and, and the, the speed at which we needed answers. So I was asked to look at this paper and, well, unfortunately, I, I procrastinated and I, I read it once and I thought, oh, this is, doesn't seem, I mean, it seems interesting, but it does, the, the language was quite difficult to pass through. Um, and then I started reading it again when, it, when I got closer to the deadline and I realised Okay, the language isn't great, and I thought, well, I'm not going to blame the authors for that. Uh, you know, English is probably their second language, and and I, and, you know, I, I certainly can't write in a, in a second language fluently or, or scientifically, so it's fine. But then I noticed some of the sentences were quite good, uh, and there was also something else funny I noticed, and that is that this sentence here, um, they said uh, this Caliatel, which was actually that original uh, in vitro study, revealed that ivermectin in- hindered extreme intense respiratory syndrome coronavirus two. But then they they call that SARS-CoV two, and I, I had never heard that um, term for it. I thought well, that's a bit strange, so I had a Google, and I realised no one else calls uh, co- uh, uh, yeah COVID that, no SARS-CoV two that. They, that it's always severe acute respiratory syndrome, not extreme intense, and then. I realized something. The reason for that is because they had plagiarized that sentence from another paper and they tried to be clever uh, by just running it through a thesaurus and changing a couple words here and there. Not ideal, but, you know, it happens. Um, sometimes, you, you know, it, it can be difficult to paraphrase things, to put them into your own words. But then I started noticing it happening again and again and again and again and again. This here is almost the entirety of the introductory section of their paper and everything in red was plagiarized. There is one sentence, there's one sentence that they maybe didn't plagiarize. It's it's hard to say. Um, I I couldn't find exactly where that came from. And again, this plagiarism wasn't always copying it and pasting it. It was often, as I said, quite clever where you'd change a word here and there, but the the syntax and the structure and the meaning of the sentence would remain. I say meaning, again, as we see, sometimes the meaning didn't quite stay, but it was quite clear that this, this this text was lifted from places such as Wikipedia and press releases and other papers. Okay, bad. It's plagiarism, not good. We don't like it. But we can almost look past it. If the data's good, well, plagiarism happens again. So I thought, well, let me have a look at the data. So uh, they had uploaded their data to a website called filetransfer.io, which I'd never heard of. Okay, I haven't heard of a lot of things. Doesn't Doesn't mean anything in particular. But when I started... Uh, when I wanted to download this data, I couldn't uh, because the link had expired. Uh, so I thought, okay, that's that. Can't see the data then. Except I noticed you can pay, uh, I think it was about £10 or £80 to reactivate a link, which is, of course, what I did. Downloaded a copy of the data, but it was locked. Okay. Also not great. So, well, what next? Well, I thought, okay, I, I'm I'm going to just try to guess a couple passwords. You know, what, what would you go for? Well, ivermectin study, COVID, uh, password one two three four, and and none of those were were the options. So then I thought, well, just before I give up, let me try one more. And the option I ended up going with was one two three four. And much to my surprise and shock, the data opened in front of me, and I was able to look at the data. Now. 
the first thing I noticed with the data, or one of the first things, is that they included the patient initials, and they that is um, very bad practice. That would, in the EU and, and possibly the UK as well, count as a data breach of, of confidential patient information. So there might even be a question of, well, why am I even showing you a little screenshot of that data? Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to why I'm not too worried about sharing patient data. The first thing I did is I just got out my calculator. I'm not statistically gifted. I just added up um, the numbers of deaths they'd reported in their paper for each of the groups, and then the numbers of deaths that they had uh, were present in the raw data. And you'd expect those to match. I think for a lot of other values, you know, let's say heart rate, blood pressure, okay, maybe the, the values don't match. That, that's okay. But a death is a pretty binary outcome. Either the patient died or they lived, and you shouldn't really be getting something that basic wrong. So I added up the deaths, and in the summary data, the papers data, and the raw data, they didn't match. And they mostly didn't match in a way that was always going to make ivermectin look better in their in their final paper. So, for example, in in the mild control, uh, mild COVID nineteen condition, uh, which, where the patient was just treated with standard of care, um, they reported four deaths in the paper and zero in the raw data. Well, you know, if there's four deaths in the control, it's always going to make the ivermectin arm look worse because the ivermectin arm here they, they found no there was no deaths okay uh, then what about the next one well the next one was the the moderate and severe uh, covid um groups and the, the the ones who were treated with ivermectin and here the data revealed there were more deaths i.e that they'd hidden deaths in between the data and the paper again not brilliant and then the third one as well they, they got the data wrong in this case it's actually a bit of a wash about really if it's, if it's doing too much but nonetheless the overall picture is that they had um uh, so they'd made a mistake that was always going to make ivermectin look better than it actually is, which, again, is, is not brilliant. So at this point, I realized I calculated this, calculated a few averages. Those were off. And I was out of my depth. Again, remember, this was I was just an undergraduate at this point. I was just about to start my master's. This was coursework in preparation for the master's. Um, but so I reached out to some people and I reached out to actually uh, these people here. Uh, these are, this is all their Twitter bios, hence, uh, yeah, uh, not Twitter bios, Twitter photos. Oh, look, here, just on cue, my cat has arrived, and she's also the one who's in my um, Twitter bio. She's got perfect timing. Uh, yes, yeah, so, so I reached out to these people, and together we started looking. These, these. So the reason the way I'd found them, I just looked for, you know, scientific fraud, ivermectin, people who were interested in scientific fraud, and also people who were interested in, in ivermectin research, and these were the people I eventually came across. And each of us sort of contributed uh, in our own way discoveries about this data. So I'd found that the numbers of deaths were were often that the, as the plagiarism. One of the things that that Gideon uh, noticed was that there was he noticed there was four patients who were all 51 years old. They all suffered from diarrhea. They all had blood, uh, the same blood hemoglobin levels. They were all diagnosed uh, with COVID on the 22nd of May 2020, and they all died on the 29th of May uh, 2020. And they were identical across many other columns of the data as well. And the initials, uh, again, as you can see, were very similar, um, almost uh, surprisingly similar. In fact, in one case, they were actually, in, for two of them, they were identical. Um, then something that Kyle noticed is, is is the terminal digit bias. And that is where you take a, a group of numbers and you look at just the last digit, uh, for instance, and uh, you strip that out and then you look at the distribution of, of those digits. And he found um, that, to cut a long story short, the probability of, of, of that the, the, the number, the, the, the distribution of the digits, it's a probability uh, of two in 10 billion, i.e. it's very unlikely that that data would have um, been generated in a, in a natural way or would, have, would have occurred by chance, I should say. So then um, Nick Brown, he had a really sort of good look at it. And as you can see, he found out that basically anything that's highlighted there was either copied or uh, pasted data. Eventually, what we found out or what seems to have been the case is the authors appear to have copied and pasted a whole bunch of patients and then sort of change a value here and there to you know, change a zero to a you know, 0.1 or a 0.5 to a, to a 0.2 or something just to, to make it a little bit uh, less clear that it had been plagiarized again uh, uh, well i've been copy and pasted again i can't for certain say this is fraud but i would say it certainly points in that direction another thing that i noticed is that either the authors are had, had, had recruited zombies into the trial or that they were somehow able to communicate by ouija board because they had recruited patients into the trial who had actually died by the time the trial had started now that that's Interesting. It's not not great practice because uh, if the trial had started, which I think it was on the eighth of June, um, but they'd already recruited patients before that date, well, they could have just you can easily you know go through and and, and sort of you know put put patients who died in to, into the trial to make it make 
again, ivermectin look better or the control look worse. And I think a lot of those patients were actually in the control group. And also, um, they, they couldn't have given informed consent for this study, which had claimed to be a sort of randomized control trial, not some sort of retrospective, retrospective analysis. So there are all of these problems. And this was quite a, I would like to find out, quite a major paper in, in the whole argument for ivermectin. Uh, although some will, of course, disagree with that interpretation. But anyway, I uh, sent out an email to the preprint repository where this paper was hosted on, and they immediately investigated our findings and very quickly published a note to say they'd retracted the, the preprint and or they're withdrawing it and they were launching a formal investigation. At this point, we had also been speaking to a, a journalist from The Guardian in Australia, Melissa Davey, who then went ahead and published an article about our findings and the fact that the paper had been withdrawn. This caused uh, quite a media stir. Again, you must remember, I had come into this as an undergraduate doing an assignment in preparation for my master's degree, and suddenly I was in the BBC, I was in MedPage Today, I was getting a call from a Colombian radio station who wanted to interview me, and I didn't realise they were had to, would have to translate what I said. So I spoke for 10 minutes, and suddenly the poor translator had to translate everything I just said. Um, so I later learned to be brief in, in those sort of uh, uh, places. So... How did people react to these this finding? Well, uh, the um, Dr. Pierre Corey, who testified to the Senate calling Ivermectin a miracle uh, from the FLCCC uh, Alliance, he wrote to the the lead author of the of the paper, uh, the paper saying that he thought it was an unfair attack upon him, and that it's how how could these people how could these people being us do this to us? And then the, the main author of the paper claimed we were against the Great Egyptian Revolution. Uh, not quite quite sure which one, but we are against one of them apparently. Um, and that was that was interesting. So that was his response. Um, he later would admit, actually, the paper is the paper stinks, and the FLCCC uh, admitted that that paper that our findings had been correct. Uh, the other other group, Bird, the UK sort of ivermectin promoting group, uh, they said that uh, ivermectin, uh, that Dr. Elgazar, the lead author of this paper, hadn't been offered a chance to reply, and that what we had said was defamatory. Uh, in the years past, we've never had any request for retraction or defamation lawsuit. And um, to be clear, I had sent prior to this uh, it's going live, I'd sent him a detailed email, I think about 3000 words to his email, his backup email, and every single one of his co-authors emails on at least one email, uh, with, a, with extensive opportunity to reply, and I never got any. Um, again, there, there was also some theory that the manuscript was still under review somewhere. What, three or two, three years later, it's never been published. There was one difference, though, and that is, or one uh, person who reacted differently, that was Dr. Andrew Hill, again, uh, sort of from, from the University of Liverpool. He retracted his meta-analysis, which had found uh, some positive uh, effects for COVID, and he immediately got in touch and started talking uh, about this paper and about uh, other papers. Unfortunately, all our findings were somewhat in vain um, because, as you can see here, again, the graph of prescriptions of ivermectin just shot up. And this was, again, uh, we, we published our initial findings in uh, July on July 14th. And as you can see, here, right after that, uh, ivermectin prescriptions shot up because it was was had been in the news that it had been building within various uh, alternative health spheres and other spheres that ivermectin is, is a cure-all miracle drug. So because of this, and because people kept sending us other papers saying, oh, have you had a look at this? What do you think of that? We started what we later termed the spreadsheet of doom. And I say, when I say we, it's, it's myself and, and, and the four other uh, colleagues who, are, who had we'd done the initial work with this other paper. And we looked at, um, I would say, 30, around 30, maybe slightly more, slightly less uh, papers that had been published on ivermectin at the time. And we found lots of different problems in, in, in very many of them. One of them we called, uh, or a journalist who we again started speaking to, she called up the hospital where the trial had, one of the hospitals where the trial had happened, and the hospital claimed to have no knowledge of the trial. Um, the One of the co-authors on that paper, uh, again, this is, this is another paper from the Egyptian, on this, on this is a, a, a paper in Argentina, uh, They the co-authors, he wasn't, he, he actually asked the main author, well, can I see the data, can I see the raw data? He was refused. Um and again, and we found sort of mathematical errors in the paper. Again, this is not to say the paper is necessarily fraudulent, but I think it was quite clear that there was issues with that paper which impacted on its uh, reliability. Another people, another lot of people, we were able to find the raw data. And again, we found that the file contained duplicates of, of 11 different patients, which had just been duplicated over and over. The authors of that said, oh, sorry, that was a mistake. That was um, training data. Uh, it was sent by mistake for analysis. Um, but don't worry, we'll be publishing the real data. And don't worry, the real data uh, found the same effect. 
I think again, two years later, to my knowledge, um, that paper or that updated data also isn't out. After looking at all these papers, we found there was a lot of problems. Um, as, as I've mentioned, you have patients being duplicated. Uh, the paper, the patients weren't randomly assigned to different groups. The numbers, they didn't seem that likely to occur by chance or, or they seemed to be fudged in some way. Percentages all over the place. Um, local health bodies were unaware of the studies. Some of the studies, the, the methodology were just weak where they'd ended the recruitment for the uh, control group and then continued recruiting for the ivermectin group, even though by that point, the ivermectin, uh, uh, this was, I should say, a prevention study, even though by that point, COVID-19 had uh, Sort of the, had dipped a bit, so there all these problems from from the papers to the methodology. But I should say, in fairness, uh, there were a few positive studies. In fact, some authors even reached out to us um, to say, "Can you look at our studies and confirm that these are legit?" Um, and there were you know positive and negative studies on both sides. But as time went by, better studies started coming along. And I think again, something that's important to realize is that a lot of people uh, on both sides of the the debate really scrutinize these studies in a in a very I think uh, good faith way. And I think a lot of people, not necessarily a skeptical movement, but sort of who are who are skeptical of ivermectin, have been too harsh to label people conspiracy theorists and anti scientific um, lunatics or something like that uh, because they've been promoting. They've been they they felt that there might be more to the ivermectin story that there might be some positive effects and. Um, yeah, I, 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 I think that is important to note that it's, well, I'll get onto that later. But one person, again, who did a reanalysis was Dr. Andrew Hill from, from Liverpool, who had retracted his paper. And he found that when uh, you look at the evidence just for, with including all these different papers, there's a, a significant effect for ivermectin. When you remove the studies that are, are pretty clearly fraudulent, um, you get a slightly less of an, a, a, an effect Uh when you remove the studies that have sort of high risk, uh, that were very suspicious or had some suspicious aspects, uh, again, there was um, even less of an effect. And then finally, when you excluded all of the studies with the problems, the effect for ivermectin went down even further. And, and overall, that doesn't seem to be an effect for ivermectin. The Cochrane group, who produced meta-analyses on all sorts of different topics and who are often seen as the gold standard, they also produced an analysis and they found that um, they're, they're, they're uncertain whether ivermectin prevents death or clinical worsening or, uh, yeah, or, or actually, on the other hand, if it increases serious adverse events. And they are st they're still, um, to this day, uncertain about that. And I think that is probably where I land as well, that I think looking at the evidence... Um, I'm uncertain. I think it's 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 anyone who calls ivermectin a miracle drug is that's that's just not uh, credible. But on the other hand, I do think that it's unfair to say there is there was never or there's no reason to think ivermectin might have some effect. So, a question that naturally arises out of all of this work um, is why do people fake research? Because as we found some of these papers, the research clearly seemed to be fake. Well, I think. The, the 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 idea that there's malicious or corrupt intent i think is very rare i think most people are, are fundamentally good and most people are trying to improve science improve the world um and they just get a bit carried away because they think well i'm just going to fudge this number here but you know I, I, ivermectin really works i believe ivermectin works is, is what they're thinking and you know i, I need the world to know so i'm going to i'm going to just ch change this number here change that number there and oh suddenly by the end of it you've created a data set which is which bears no uh, connection to reality um, there's other people, I think, who are looking for the right answer. There's a lot of times in science, particularly you know, as you come up through education, GCSEs, A-levels, beginning of undergraduate, where you think of science as always having right answers and that, oh, you know, I just need to find the right answer. And unfortunately, I think schools encourage this, where you, you'll, you'll do a test and there will be a right and wrong answer. And of course, there are some things which are more 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 right, more 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 heavily evidenced. But I think that there's a danger of thinking when you're doing an experiment, particularly in an area where there's no evidence or where something's unknown, to think well there is a right answer to get to. I think a lot of people look for the right answer rather than the actual answer. Of course, there's some people who who fake studies or fudge data uh, for career advancement or for for other sort of practical considerations, which aren't necessarily malicious, but are not what we'd say you know noble uh, intent. And one person who wasn't involved in the ivermectin papers, but who has was, was exposed a few years ago for faking papers, I think, in, in psychology, he, he described it as, uh, I wanted to go faster and better and higher and smarter all the time. I thought it would help if I just took a tiny little shortcut. But then I found myself more and more often in completely the wrong lane. And in the end, I wasn't even on the road at all. And I think that is a danger when when, when we start fudging data, when we start overselling something that we, we we take a little shortcut we 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 allow ourselves to make a decision 
who are going to do something. And then suddenly we look back a few months, a few decisions later, and we are sort of nowhere near the road. There's no way back uh, without um, admitting everything that has happened. And I should say the explanation that a lot of ivermectin research was 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 uh, i wouldn't say just fraudulent but it was just poorly designed and there was there's issues is not the only explanation for why ivermectin seemed to to show some effect um in in early research there's others other suggestions such as the worm hypothesis which was um created or at least um promoted by uh, dr avi bitterman who and the idea is that um in countries where there are these par- where there are more parasitic uh, worm infections, uh, you see a uh, you see ivermectin having a, a better effect than in countries uh, without them. And, and the explanation for that would be that the ivermectin is treating the worm infections, thereby making the COVID patients stronger and better able to fend off the virus. And uh, additionally, there's a second wrinkle on it that a lot of uh, um, that, that people are often given corticosteroids to treat ivermectin as uh, to, to treat COVID, um, and they the worms as a response to that can sort of uh, it can create hyperinfection in the worms uh, there's also an idea that there was a lot of public publication bias going on um and that is the the idea that um for, for ivermectin studies if, if you had done a sort of small scale maybe sort of 50 20 patients and you found no effect for ivermectin you'll be a lot less likely to publish that or to get the data uh, out there uh, than if you'd found in that same number of patients a positive effect and there's some evidence that that uh, that was actually the case that, that ivermectin was the, the 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 evidence for it was driven by publication bias so uh, as we near the end um the question is well who was right is, is ivermectin a horse drug or is it a miracle and i think the question the answer is well it, it it's both um it's a, you know it is not a a brilliant drug for for treating covid um uh, but it is it is a it, it, you know, let's, let's not use the word miracle but it is a very effective drug uh, in in many other spheres, um, from from particularly anti-parasitic uh, um, uh, infections, or parasitic infections, I should say, and potentially, as as I'm looking into potentially cancer, although again, uh, far far too early to say anything about that uh, in humans. But another problem in all of this uh, sphere is that the data for ivermectin was reviewed by the FDA, the European Medicines Agency, the South African uh, Health Department, and, and lots of other agencies all over the world. Um, I have to give a little bit of kudos to the South African Health Department. They, when I initially started looking at ivermectin, they were one of the first to really you know, raise questions about some of the evidence and really breaking down study by study. But on the whole, people didn't... The, the, the problems that were raised by these people were not... Uh, well, I should say what they were is they were saying, oh, well, randomization isn't good. These are small studies, da, 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 da. But what they didn't ask is, did this study actually happen? Is Are we looking at data that is real? Are we looking at patients who are actually treated? Is this genuine? And unfortunately, the answer to that was, well, for a lot of ivermectin studies, or I should say at least some ivermectin studies, that, that wasn't the case. The, the data was not natural, was not derived from real patients. So, what went wrong? Well, there was these systemic failures by by the regulators, by scientists, by by sort of whoever you want to blame in the sort of scientific establishment. Uh, I think also uh, another thing, scientists and, and regulators were a little bit slow to act um, in responding to some of this overhyping, but also uh, not starting studies early enough. I think there, when there was this potential evidence there should have been big studies that sort of came out at the beginning of of 2021 rather than sort of coming out near the end half or even into 2022 when by that time the the horse had bolted and and based on this initial research where there was some positive evidence you know ivermectin had had been driven into the spotlight as a wonder drug and i think again there's a big failure in a lot of science and a lot of studies to, to ask well did this study actually happen and that's i think something that we need to more and more uh start thinking about I think there was also a lot of politicization that that clouded the debate from people like Trump and people on the right saying, well, ivermectin is this brilliant drug, we should all take it. And, and then that partially initiated a reaction from the other side saying, well, it's a complete rubbish drug, it's a horse dewormer. And I think that meant that one couldn't have a good faith debate, uh, at least it made a good faith debate a lot more difficult. Um, and I think that was potentially harmful for public health. And it also set up the false dichotomies where you either had to say, well, ivermectin is a useless drug or it's a brilliant drug, when you know potentially the, the correct position is, well, it probably doesn't do much, but maybe it does. You know, maybe there's a small effect. And what were the consequences of all of this? Well, again, millions of people, um, tens of millions, I don't know, but millions of people certainly w- were treated with the drug or took the drug for prevention. Um, and, and it might not work. So it might have 
cause harm in some of those people. And we don't really know, uh, you know, just to full extent, you know, these these in some of these cases, really high doses of ivermectin for for a prolonged time. Uh, and in, in in populations where the drug isn't normally used, it's it's, it's normally used in in sort of uh, sub-Saharan Africa, South South America. And what happens if we suddenly start taking it in in America or the UK or, or wherever? Well, we don't we don't know if, if those populations the drug works as well, or, or, or sorry, has as this is, is as safe. Um, again, more effective treatments missed out on um, public attention, research attention, financing. And again, going back to the previous slide, there was an unhelpful debate which clouded the science or detracted or dis distracted, I shouldn't say detracted, distracted from the science. So how can we fix this? How can we fix science? How can we fix all, all these different issues? Well, I think for me, the biggest is transparency, transparency, transparency. The only way that we were able to detect a lot of these issues, or one of the major ways, is by actually having access to the data. And um, I'm surprised that some of these people gave us the data or put up the data because it was so clearly not real. But... I mean, good that they did. I'm glad they did. And I think uh, it's important to to have that data. And that's why it's, that's something I've, again, fallen into is, is this work and really trying to push scientific and trans uh, transparency and integrity. I think it's also important that we start trust. We can trust the data, but we should also verify it. And and, and we should end the assumption of, of good faith in science. Not not completely, but the, but the blind faith that, well, you know, this scientific paper probably happened or as described. And even if there's some, you know, flaws around the edges, you know, at least it happened. I think we need to start thinking, well, did it? And um, how can we how can we prove that it did or didn't? And again, that's why I think it would be a useful thing to start hiring people, um, not just to look at the stats plan, but look at did this paper happen? So that's some sort of fraud analyst or fraud uh, investigator. So again, bring this right back full circle um, back to two years ago when I was sitting at this very desk as an undergraduate student um, about to fall into a, a world and um, something that I had no idea about. What, what did I learn since then? Well, I learned that science is broken-ish. There's a lot of brilliant work going on in science, and I'm not saying anything about, you know, we shouldn't discard science, obviously, uh, the, the audience here and my work, you know, but I'm saying that we need to think critically about it. But also that collaboration is vital. The people I worked with uh, on, on all of these things, we were distributed all around the world, different institutions, different places, and we found ourselves through Twitter and through social media. And I think it's very important that um, whenever yeah, that, that, that you always collaborate with other people because you you, you can gain so much from, from each other's perspectives. Uh, number three, I think I have to say, we must be sceptical. We must act as sceptics and question uh, assumptions and question the data. And finally, uh, I think one of the biggest things I learned is that anyone can make an impact. If me, as at the time, sort of an undergraduate student just about to start my master's, can make global impact, then anyone can. And I think any of you could. So just think critically, think sceptically, and I think together we can help change the world. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you've all refreshed your glasses, emptied your bladders and are ready, ready to hear Jack go again, really. Um, because I am. We've got some really interesting questions. Thank you very much, everybody. And thank you again for your donations, particularly some people are being really generous. So very, very much thank you. Um, so on to uh, the first question from Paul, aka Picticule, who asks, what do you think is the best way to ensure that studies are carried out and reported properly? Is pre-registration the answer? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that is uh, definitely a major component of the solution. Um, I think pre-registration, but not only pre-registration, but like pre-registration um, that's followed up on uh, that has penalties or, or some sort of response in place if 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 uh, well let, let me let me put it this way so when I was doing as as, as Claire mentioned at the beginning there was a lot of work that I did also looking at um, molnupiravir which is another Merck drug for for COVID um, and a lot what we noticed is there was a lot of trials conducted in India and about I think thirteen thousand patients and those studies a whole bunch of them happened they were pre-registered but nothing ever no, nothing was reported. And at one point, that represented about 90% of the, 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 the global population of patients, the known global population of patients um, uh, who had been treated with molnupiravir, again, not by Merck, but by other generic uh, companies who Merck had given a license to. And no one checked, as I said, no, no one checked what those studies had found. And that, you know, if only 10% of the data on, on a drug is available, well, you know, we can't say, we, we can't be very confident, uh, or at least there's reason for us to worry, are we being too confident, I should probably say. 
Um, and in, 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 in the US, there's the requirement to uh, upload your data within uh, a year after study completion. But I think uh, from what I last read, about 40, only 40 percent of, of papers uh, of, of researchers actually meet that requirement. And as far as I know, there isn't really a uh, mechanism in force to actually enforce that. And, and maybe there should be. So pre-registration, enforcement of that pre-registration. And then also, I think another solution, the big one, as, as I mentioned, is transparency that not only the summary data, so that's you know, the this like fifty percent of patients got better needs to be published, but also you know that individual participant data. Obviously, following anonymization, following uh, checks to, to to see that it's difficult to de-anonymize, and and potentially you know for some really uh, private data you know behind some sort of restriction, such as um, you know so, so there's, there's some companies like Vivly who 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 researchers can deposit their data with them, and then uh, when someone wants to request that data, they assess well should these people have that data. I think there's a, a tendency for people to to keep that individual participant data a little bit too private, but. Um, you know, once it's anonymized, in theory, it shouldn't really be very confidential at all. But anyway, that's that's uh, r- rather than me rambling on. I think that's the answer: pre-registration, enforcement, and uh, putting that data public, and then checking that everything along that pathway was done and matches. So, is there anything in place at all for check? Because I mean, people do pre-register, but yep. then does that just go into a void, or is, is there anything in place? As far as I know, um, there isn't really any. Any um, other than, I guess, public embarrassment. I mean, as far as I know, there are no no government entities fining people or uh, coming and knocking on their door saying, "Where's the data?" I think it's just a matter of of, of something public shaming. And sometimes, you know, it, with, obviously with ivermectin, there's so much attention on it, but there's millions or hundreds of thousands of of, of of drugs and studies into them. And if someone's not really keeping track of what's going on, that sort of stuff can easily uh, fall by the way, wayside without anyone really noticing. And um- worryingly it probably is absolutely yeah. I, I think yeah. it's almost certainly yeah or not even so it's definitely happening yeah so uh, on to the next question which is from Igor um, he said uh, do you work on something similar to this investigation now uh, do you plan to pursue the investigative science career um yes I mean I hope so I mean I, I'm I'm uh, planning to to start a PhD soon um probably again in in sort of pancreatic cancer um still haven't worked out the final details on that but yes uh, i hope to continue doing this um uh, this this how this whole experience has really enlivened an interest in me uh, about research integrity and about improving science um so it's something I, I aim to continue with at the moment um am i working on something at the moment uh no the last big thing was the paper on molnupiravir that i published in uh, in, in in um january but I'm, i might start looking at uh yeah what well, the What's it called the Pfizer drug, uh, Paxlovid or something, and seeing if there's something there. But yeah, that's definitely something I plan to continue. Alongside preparing for your PhD. Yes. So it, uh, yeah, <laughs> one of them is, is, is it probably might have to take us, uh, what's it called, like a, a sideline. I have to sideline it a bit, but we'll see. Right. Okay. Um, next question is from Skeptical Gumby, who asks a question probably on behalf of quite a lot of people. Yes. And uh, she says, uh, could you explain a bit more about that whole last number thing? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not very um, uh, mathematically gifted or statistically gifted, so I'm probably the wrong person to to really give a, a good explanation. But um, I'll, I'll try. I'll, I'll have a try. So when when people are creating or entering data, particularly if, 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 if let's say made up data, um, there is a tendency for us to end. The, to have those numbers end in, in specific digits so we're, we're more again this is plugging this number let's say the two we're more likely to end you know 0. You know, 5.02 and we're, so there will be a naturally you would expect some distribution of those numbers i don't know if you'd expect each number to be uh, present in, a, in, a, in an equal proportion i think there's i think zeros and some anyway cut long story short that there's some sort of distribution which you'd expect in randomly created generated data when data is created by humans i.e., sort of fake data um you expect to see or, you, or a one sign can be if it's generated uh, sort of manually um is that that's really out of whack so in this example the 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 number three and um, in, in in like hundreds and hundreds of or i think well, uh, of data points in this uh, in that study uh, only three of them ended in the number three and you wouldn't expect that to happen uh, randomly as, as as dr sheldrick said uh, there's sort of a two in ten billion chance um that that occurred randomly so hopefully i made that a little bit clearer if you, if you look up um terminal digit bias i'm sure you can find a much better explanation yeah so sort of related to the fact that we're crap at doing random numbers yes i think that yes exactly 
Thanks. Um, next question is from Serda, and uh, thank you to Serda, who is our Turkish contact, who helped us with the uh, finding the best charities to donate to, or best as best we could anyway. Um, uh, so Serda asks, um, do you think that what we experienced with hydro, uh, hydroxychloroquine shifted the uh, science community's perception of ivermectin? Uh, I think so. I think so. And I think it, what it also allowed is that there was a whole community that was created on the um, uh, alternative sort of health, the uh, sort of uh, science skeptic, whatever, whatever whatever we want to call the people who, you know, conspiracy theorists, whatever, whatever term we want to use. It created a community um, that was primed to take up something mm -hmm. like ivermectin. And um, on the other hand, you know, again, there was, I think, probably, you know, we scientists were felt a bit, you know, Oh well, ivermectin is just like like hydroxychloroquine, and it's you know, and I think obviously in some ways it has been. Um, you know, there, there's been people who are have been continuing to promote it. Um, uh, in, in ways that I would say verge on uh, unethical, unprofessional, and and just bad. Um, and yeah, yes, unquestionably, I think it played a role. Sorry, something just occurred to me. Why? I mean, did did they get money from it? Uh, you, you, the people who, who created the ivermectin yeah. studies? No, the, the people who were are still wanting to promote it despite... So, yes. So, so I mean, there's a couple of things that happened. As I mentioned, the America's frontline doctors, whatever they were called, they, they, they benefited financially and they, they would sell prescriptions. And again, they would sell them and, and others as well. I, I believe it was them who sold them. Anyway, some people uh, sold prescriptions for like $149 or something, I think I remember reading, uh, for a drug that costs, you know, pennies to produce. You know, even if you wanted to sell it for the normal you know price in america it, it would probably be under ten dollars or something for a full course um i mean don't quote me exactly exactly but but you can see it it's like they've, they've added a massive uh inflation on, onto that uh, so the other thing as well is um what was i going to say that uh yes i think some some people there's also a bit of audience capture that they 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 you know, began, I think, fairly, you know, saying, well, there might be something to this. And then the sort of extreme wing said, oh, yes, there's definitely something to this. This is, you know, big pharma that's hiding all this data. Uh, and then they sort of get dragged along. And, and for example, the, the FLCCC, I mean, there were some people who are part of it. I've completely forgotten his name, but there's, there's, there's some people who are part of it who then who ultimately left because they were uh, disturbed by the way it became anti-vax and became anti-science and, and sort of lost that focus on looking for the best treatments and became just sort of a vehicle for, for ivermectin promotion and... Um, ultimately the sort of denigration of vaccines so yes uh right yeah. that's really interesting because not igor asks a question about big pharma it seems that they can be criticized for promoting drugs and for not promoting drugs so uh what uh, not igor asks is uh, how do you deal with all the naysayers who try to claim that your debunking of ivermectin was some big pharma plot yeah that's a good question i mean i i have never received any money from a vaccine manufacturer, a pharma manufacturer. I've never, you know, like Merck or uh, uh, Pfizer tapping me on the the back saying, "Oh, you know, this 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 ivermectin. We're worried it's going to cut into our profits." And and I will, you know, happily go on the record to say that I think, you know, there's the big big pharma companies. There's there's major problems, and particularly, you know, the way that they, you know, price gouged and or plan to price. I, I you know, and, and and the IP protection on the drugs, patent, all of that. Like I I've got no love for big pharma. I think. They obviously fulfil a role in producing medicines and in, in, in research, and I, you know, I'm not I'm not saying that nothing they do is good, but I am, you know, I I, I am critical of pharma, and uh, as it, you know, again, if, if the conspiracy was, which it was at one point, that I'd been paid <clears throat> to uh, promote, oh, sorry, to, to, to attack ivermectin. Um, to, so in order that Merck could sell Molnupiravir, which is their drug, well, I sort of disproved that by then. Sort of the next, the next big investigation did was into Molnupiravir, uh, and yeah, I just, I mean, I would say with Molnupiravir, I'm not. What I found wasn't fraud. It was there was other issues with with that data, but not not necessarily. I'm not saying there's fraud in that. But anyway, to cut a long story short, um, I think my my my, my record uh, backs it up that I'm certainly no no lover of big of big pharma. Um, so really, Igor, this time uh, he says. Uh, are the villains of this particular detective story malicious actors doing shady stuff or just not that brilliant people fudging the data to chase the clout? So the real question, I think, is who are the villains? And I think um, some of the villains are, I think it's bad to fake data. I think unquestionably, and I think it's it's wrong. And obviously they are, they are, that is, yeah, they are definitely the villains in that way. Um, but I, 
think, as I, as I said, I don't think on the whole, I don't think they're doing it like with a malicious motive. I think some of it is that they thought there was something really there and maybe they found in a small study that there was and then they just barked up the patients have a bigger sample size you know, by copying and pasting. Maybe that's what happened. Um, and yeah, they, they did it for, for reasons of career advancement because you know they, they don't really get money for finding that, but they would, you know, be that their paper was, you know, massively cited, massively downloaded. They would, you know, improve their chances of getting research grants, it would improve their chances of, you know, being invited to conferences, all, all sorts of different things. Um to me, I think the real villains are are, are, <clears throat> are the people who took advantage of people's fear and and sold them uh, a drug at a massively inflated price. I think those are, are, are more villainous to me. Or, I don't know, it's hard to say, maybe equally villainous as the people who faked the data, particularly, I think particularly the people who then never admitted that they faked it So or th- that there were problems. So I, I don't know. It's, the short answer is I, I think it's it's maybe not even for me to say who the villains are, but to me, um, yeah, I, I don't think, most people I don't think are doing it for malicious grounds. So not very clever, some of them. <laughs> Maybe, I think they're doing it for human grounds. Those yeah. are, those are very understandable, but not but bad, yeah. Yeah. So Nadia next, who asks, during your investigative journey, have you received any threats from the villains, for example, to affect your career in a bad way? Fortunately, I haven't. Um, I mean, I think at one point it was difficult for them to even know where my university was and even my own university that took them a while to realize I'd actually done all of this and then I came to them and said you know I've like been in the BBC and 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 uh, Guardian and they're like oh oh please uh, tell us more and, and then they, they sort of did a write-up of what I'd found but um uh no is the short answer to my knowledge um but I have I have had death threats I have been told uh, I will be on on um on trial in the Nuremberg 2.0 trials I've committed crimes against humanity I have uh, been paid off by Big Pharma, and I am an evil person for, for what I do. Even though, as I said, my position is not that ivermectin has, you know, that it's impossible for it to have an effect. It's that I just don't think it's likely to have a really useful effect. Um, and the person who has actually received a lot of backlash is, is Dr. Andrew Hill, who I mentioned a couple of times in the talk. He ended up having to delete his uh, Twitter account because he started getting major death threats for for turning on on the movement, uh, the the pro ivermectin movement. Uh, they felt and those old conspiracies of him being paid off by by Bill Gates and and all sorts of things, but actually, if you look at it, it was actually a grant to his university, which wasn't connected to him, and it's 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 complete nonsense, obviously. But the conspiracies uh, they move on, and and they yeah, I haven't personally had to delete my social media, but but I know he has, and I know some other people have have had more worrying threats than I have. I hope it stays that way for you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, another one from Igor. He's very active today. Uh, are you afraid that politics are mixing with science to extend to to the extent that they shouldn't mix? Uh, and do you think that should be addressed somehow? Um, yes and no. Yes, I, I think I think politics. I think there's a danger of always uh, of, of politicising science. And I uh, again, I'm, I'm you know new to this whole area of science. You know, I've, uh, but. Um, the, the, yeah, the, the, that there. I've never would have expected like a, a drug to become a, a, an issue that you can sort of fairly reasonably. If someone says, "Oh, I'm I'm pro ivermectin," you can you know generally say, "Well, they're probably more on the right side." Or if the, the, sorry, if they say yeah, pro ivermectin, they're more on the right. And if they say, "Well, I'm against," it, you know, maybe you could say, "I'm probably on the right." I think that's a bit it's weird and it's, it's a problem. Um, and I think that it just exposes bigger problems though in in the whole political sphere. I think also. The issue is like everything we do is political. Science is political, whether we want it to be or not, or has at least political consequences. And you know what we fund, the way we, you know, what, how all, all these things have political consequences. So I think it's unavoidable that politics is involved in some way. But I do think it's a problem when it becomes sort of party political and becomes um, uh, very uh, violent. Very the way it's become now, I think that's a, it's a real problem. Yeah. Yes. So um, I. Chromium 52 asks actually um, a really interesting question. Mm -hmm. Do you think the backlash against ivermectin COVID quackery is now getting in the way of legitimate use in studies? Um, I I think it could do. And I I mean, again, just as as, you know, from my cancer example, I mean, I am always at pains. I mean, for exactly because it's true that it's, you know, the stuff I'm doing is it's far too early to say whether it's actually having any effect would have any effect in people. But I 
I, I do also feel that I have to say that a lot more strongly than I would have, you know, a couple of years ago, because I think people immediately jumped to, oh, you know, you're a, crack, a quack as well, because there are, of course, people who, uh, funnily enough, on Twitter, they, they say, they're like, oh, you know, the, they quietly, you know, released that, uh, the fact that ivermectin cures cancer and then no one's told us about it. Um, and, and all those sorts of conspiracies. And it's actually, well, no, I mean, you read that in a paper that was published in a journal and that was peer reviewed and that, you know, it, yeah, I, I think it, it, has a potential, but I don't think the danger is as big. So I think you know people on the more scientific or skeptical side can also see well. You know that's it's not the same um, situation, and also, yeah, it, it's it's. I think slowly, you know, people will readjust and, and understand that ivermectin does have uses that, yeah, are, are not just uh, COVID or whatever. Um, next question comes from Parrot Lady. Uh, she says, "How common do you think this is?" I think. By this, she, I'm guessing that she means the um, this kind of inventing of transferring of data. Can you think mm. of any other topics where you think it's likely to have happened? Um, it's hard to say. I think the problem is what like once once you become interested in the topic, you start seeing it everywhere, and you start you start sort of over. Uh, emphasizing the problem and and you know there's some some paper a couple of years ago that they they were saying it's you know one in uh, one in five studies so sort of twenty percent of research is fraudulent you know others put their number one in one in ten one in five I certainly think it is a problem I think it's a bigger problem than most people would think it is um, and and again it's not because people are doing something maliciously it's just happening for all these various reasons so I yes short answer yes it is happening longer answer. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know necessarily what we can do about it other than keep looking. Um, and I don't necessarily, I'm trying to think, I, I, I've been so focused on, on COVID treatments that I, I haven't really got a, a good picture of where else it might be. Um, because also the problem is that a lot, there's a lot of research in, in uh, I think, anesthesiology uh, where people have looked skeptically at some of that, that those papers. But the problem is, it's, are we just, is it just because those people have looked there that they found it? And, and if I look, if you look at some other topic, would you find the same thing? And the answer is probably yes. So I think it's a problem in, in, in all of science, but yeah. That's, that's actually really interesting because obviously psychology is an area where um, replication started being really difficult. And uh, as someone who has a, a, I'm not a psychologist, but I have a background partly in psychology. And you get, you think, well, hang on a minute, is it just psychology or is it that, is it actually wider mm -hmm. than that? And you're suggesting it's it's probably probably. I mean, I think it's also like something like um, again, maybe I maybe I shouldn't speak on this because I don't, I, I'm not I'm not a physicist or chemist, but I, I, I imagine things like physics and chemistry and, and some of those more um, I don't well let's say for one of better or harder sciences are maybe harder to fake because uh, I mean uh, with big discoveries there's obviously more tension and, and the data is like a lot more cut and dry than than with humans. Anything you know with humans gets messy. Um, so I imagine there are some areas of science where it's less prevalent and some where it's more, but I think mm -hmm. it probably exists everywhere. Medicine and psychology are both messy. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so talking about, actually, I mentioned replication, but Igor says, uh, is this uh, part of a bigger replication crisis in science? Uh, should we have been doing something already to prevent stuff like it? Uh, yes and yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know how much more to say. It's, but I, I think yes, I think that it's it's, it's a symptom of, of a bigger problem and, and something we should have dealt with. All right. Um, Garnet then asks, uh, do you think that the Americans being more invested in wanting to believe it's down to? Hang on, let me just try and get this. Do you think that Americans being more invested in wanting to believe it's down to the Trump promotion, or are some groups more susceptible than others? Do you, think it's um, oh, do you think it's Americans being more invested or is it is it just different? Yeah, that's a good question. I think so. I think I think. Yeah. So like, let me also I've got a lot of family who are in South Africa and it's also a very big thing there. Um, and uh, we obviously know about America because we're all sort of hyper focused on America. But I think it was also big in other countries. Now, maybe some of these big political debates um were less so, but I certainly think the Trump phenomenon played played a deal, a big deal. I mean, if we look at the UK, there there are there is a there is a movement there. Some people there was even some protests about ivermectin a few years ago, or was it a few years ago in twenty twenty one, and the difference here is that it's not easily available as a prescription uh, drug. It's a lot harder to get. You can't um, like in America. I, 
get the impression that you can just sort of turn up almost, uh, you know, to to a doctor or one of these uh, telemedicine doctors and, and get prescribed it, you know, just just because you want it. Um, here, there, we've got different norms about it, and uh, I think that played a role in the fact that it didn't really become as big an issue in the UK. Um, so again, yes, short answer is having a, a, a. I think the Trump phenomenon played an effect, but I think there's a danger of just viewing it as um, only the Trump phenomenon because it did happen in other places. Yeah. So yeah, don't, don't be complacent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the last question. Um, so you were telling us that your university had no idea that you'd become famous. <laughs> yes. What about your um, What about your supervisor? Did the person who set you the assignment paper know it was such a can of parasitic worms? And <laughs> uh, no, they had the, 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 the there was two of them, and, and but the, no, they hadn't. But neither of them had any idea that it was it was really an assignment to test again. You know how how are we approaching papers and also understanding? You know a preprint uh, is less. You know hasn't been peer reviewed yet, so it's maybe less we can put less trust in it than paper and, and it was all those sort of skills you know how 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 do we you know as, as budding scientists uh, start evaluating that stuff so um when i brought it to their attention they were both shocked and they said oh well i said you know can i mention that i found this stuff and they were like mm, well you can it's not but it's not really what we were uh the skill that we're trying to test so only mention if it's relevant um and in the end um i mean the the, the, the we were asked to critically analyze the paper and you would have thought that uh, by getting the paper retracted, uh, that would be sort of the ultimate example of critical analysis, but uh, and 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 be worthy of a hundred percent. Unfortunately, in the end, it wasn't. I think I got I got seventy two percent, which which I guess is a first. But I don't know. I, I feel like I I I want uh, I want them to recount the votes. Prize, <laughs> you wanted some special prize for look what I did. I, yeah, I've exactly. done that. So. I will just say thank you. Thank you for keeping it absolutely riveted all evening. And I, I think a lot of other people were equally riveted um, and we'll be keeping an eye on what's happening next. Yes. Um, so to finish up, another brilliant round of applause, please, for Jack Lawrence. Thank you. That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. For more sceptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook, follow at SITP on Twitter, or head to our website at sitp.online, where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thula Bora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening.